This is episode 27, and we're going to get the blueprint for cutting great comedy and having a successful editing career from Emmy-nominated editor Roger Nygaard, ACE. Welcome to the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. My name is Joaquin Elizondo, and I edit films and scripted TV shows in Hollywood. I created the Hollywood Editing Mentor Program to help aspiring editors start or advance their careers in post-production. I don't have any training in coaching or some fancy degree in psychology. I'm just a guy who is relentless in pursuing his goals and wants to help people do the same. But I didn't achieve happiness and success in my career alone. Throughout the years, I've come across some amazing people that have offered valuable advice and guidance. That's why I created the Hollywood Editing Mentor Program, to help people navigate the path to achieving their career goals. I've been in your shoes and gone through the same struggles. The challenges and fears on this journey are real. And I want to tell you, it is possible. I got a really good episode for you guys today because editor Roger Nygaard is here to talk about his new book, Cut to the Monkey, a Hollywood editor's behind-the-scenes secrets to making hit comedies. And I got to say, it truly is a guide to finding success as an editor, whether you want to work in comedy or really any other genre. And you can certainly learn a thing or two about cutting comedy from Roger because he's worked with some of the funniest people in the business. And Roger's new book, Cut to the Monkey, is the story of a filmmaker's journey through Hollywood, revealing the techniques behind how the experts find the laughs in any project. Before we get started, though, I just want to invite you to become a member of the Hollywood Editing Mentor community. You can sign up at hollywoodeditingmentor.com slash community. And also make sure to subscribe to the Hollywood Editing Mentor podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. And don't forget to share this episode with anyone that is looking to start or advance their editing career. All right, so my guest today is Emmy-nominated editor Roger Nygaard, who, as a filmmaker, is known for the feature film Suckers and the documentaries Trekkies and The Truth About Marriage. He has also directed TV series like The Office and The Bernie Mac Show. His work as an editor includes Emmy-nominated episodes of Who is America, Veep, and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Last year, he produced and edited the docuseries The Comedy Store, and currently, he's editing The White House Plumbers. And today, we're going to talk about his new book, Cut to the Monkey, where he shares filmmaking stories that will leave you feeling inspired and better prepared to deal with your own struggles. This truly is a great book. I mean, I've already learned so much from it, and, and I love how it focuses on both the soft and hard skills that are related to editing. Roger also shares a lot of personal stories and experiences from the cutting room and wisdom from comedy luminaries like Sasha Baron Cohen, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and Larry David, just to name a few. There are also a lot of technical tips in this book that'll help you become a better comedy editor. So make sure you get Cut to the Monkey today by using the link in the show notes. Hanging out here with editor Roger Nygaard on the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. It's great to have you here, Roger. How you doing? Uh, good, thank you, because it's really uh, pleased to be here. Well, I'm really looking forward to talking about your new book, Cut to the Monkey, a Hollywood editor's behind-the-scenes secrets to making hit comedies. Congrats. I read it. It's it's truly amazing, and I definitely am excited to talk to you more about it. Oh, good. Thanks. Yeah, I, <laughs> I wanted to just tell people, look, here's how it's done. You know, this isn't a lofty meditation on what is montage, right? It's like, you know, here's how to succeed as an editor. Uh, it's like a, a cookbook for editors. No, it truly is. And that's what I really enjoyed about it is that it's just like you're giving us exactly what we need to know to be successful as an editor. And the great thing is that it's not just about, say, the technical 
side of things, right? It's a lot about, honestly, the, the, the softer skills that we need to pay attention to and also just simply being able to tell a good story. Well, one of my themes in the book is that I think to be successful, to compete with those out there who, you, who are good and that you're competing against, you don't want to be an editor who cuts films. It's better to be a filmmaker who edits. You need to have the skills that surround editing as well as editing. I mean, anybody and lots of people learn the software. There are many people who are much faster on the software than I am, but that's not what leads to success. It's just one aspect in your tool belt. I rely on my assistants for technical knowledge to fill in the gaps where I have very little. I know what I need to know to be able to manipulate the software, but what has gotten me to where I am as an editor is so much more than that. I mean, that's what the book is about. Totally. Well, exactly. And that's, that's what I certainly talk about here on the, through the Hollywood Editing Mentor Program. So again, it just it's awesome that you put this out there. And I really look forward to definitely getting more into it. But before we do that, talk to us more about you and, and your career. How did you become an editor? And also, I mean, I know you've, you've directed, you've produced, you've written projects. So just tell us kind of more about your career, how you got started. Well, you know, editing captured my heart for sure. And that's where I do, I spend the most of my production time is in, edit, in an editing room. Most of my job offers are for editing, but you're, I do all of the above that you just listed. I started out being obsessed with movies as a kid, as a child, watching movies with my parents. My dad loved sci-fi and action films like Mysterious uh, Island or uh, Where Eagles Dare. I remember watching that with my dad. And it was so suspenseful. I can still remember how my feet were tingling as I was watching Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton. You know, it was just uh, unforgettable and in, in, in influential to me. And my mother loved Hitchcock films. So, you know, the birds, I've, I've never been so freaked out and scared of birds in my life, but it's because of the way that film was so well put together, so well edited. And I've never forgotten that, those aspects. I, being obsessed with this idea of movies that when you're a kid, it's just one of many things like bike riding or playing with dough, Play-Doh or <laughs> clay, right? Oh, movies, clay, bike riding. What will I do today? I found my dad's camera and started taking pictures. And I can remember vividly the very first time my dad left the camera out. He went to work. He worked for General Mills as a grain buyer in Minneapolis. And we lived out in the country. And there's not much to do out in the country except what you, how you amuse yourself. And so I found my dad's camera. He, there was a half a roll left in it. And I went outside and started taking pictures of things. It was in the middle of winter. I went down to the lake and I saw where the water had splashed up and made these fascinating to me, beautiful stalactites, stalagmites, where it froze and dripped down from the roots of the trees by the, by the lake. Took pictures of this because I thought it was pretty. And then I put the camera back and forgot about it. Okay, on to whatever's next, sledding. And then about two or three weeks later, a package came in the mail and my dad opened the package and looked at the photos and said, who wasted this film on ice? <laughs> so, so I was in trouble once again. And then my mother looked at it and said, hey, these are really pretty good. You know, and, and she was very encouraging of my artistic side. And then I found my dad's eight millimeter camera, started shooting little dumb little movies. And I have ne never really stopped. It's just the budgets have gotten a little bit bigger over time. <laughs> Maybe not that much more sophisticated, though. Yeah, I remember not being able to put down my dad's Sony Hi8 camcorder as a kid. Well, now everyone's got a camera in their phone, right? And so a lot of kids are, they have the tools right in their hand at an early age, and they're taking pictures, they're shooting videos, they're posting them, they're editing them. 
And this is going to create a new generation of filmmakers who will have the technical skills. But what I found, and you, you know, may have noticed in the book, I really emphasize storytelling skills, which are as important, maybe even probably more important than knowing how to use the camera, is knowing what a three-act structure is or how that affects the, the story, overall story you're trying to tell and joke structure and setups and punchlines. There's a formula. It's almost like a mathematical formula to these things. It's very easy to learn. And once you have it, your editing will be so much better. Well, exactly. I've recently had these conversations, you know, people ask me, for example, what's, what's the best, you know, editing software. And there's all these, you know, NLE wars and whatnot. And it's like, well, these are just, these are just tools, Right. I mean, it's like the important thing is to learn, like you said, about story, being a storyteller. And I feel it's important that people understand that. Even if you're cutting a short film or a commercial, it's still the best commercials follow a three act structure with a setup, a rising action, a, uh, obstacles for, with a protagonist who has a goal and a climax or the punchline. Although they're told very much more quickly. And that's really where I learned a lot of my skills was I spent two years writing, producing, and editing promos and commercials for TNT and TNT Latin America. And when you have to cut everything out of except what's the, the minimum to tell the story in a 15-second promo, it forces you to be very judicious about what remains. And you start to learn how irrelevant so many things are to the most important point you're trying to make. And even if you're editing a two-hour movie, you don't want anything in there that isn't absolutely crucial to telling the story. Where I might make an exception, though, is if something's really funny. Okay, I'll leave that tangent in just because it's so funny, it, it establishes its own reason for existence. But generally, you what I do as an editor is I take the raw material and I clear away everything that isn't necessary to make the point of the movie. And that's often the writers, the actors, the director, they'll give you a, a lot of things that are not necessary. And so it's your job to remove these things. And you're essentially rewriting the story. An editor ha is a writer. That's why you as an editor have to understand writing, reading, storytelling, uh, structure of storytelling in order to be able to be the person to do this final rewrite on the project that's uh, in front of you. One of the producers I worked with, Alec Berg, once put it this way, he said that writing the script, if it's like making a meal, writing the script is like writing down the ingredients. Filming or the production is like going to the store and buying all the ingredients. And you get there and go, oh, they're out of this. Well, what can we re re replace it with? Oh, this is on sale. Hey, here's a, let's try this. You bring all these ingredients, you present them to the editor, who's essentially like the chef. And you say, okay, now make the meal. And so sometimes the script is very specific and helpful or the recipe, and sometimes it's very general and you have to figure it all out or put a lot of your own, yourself, your thoughts, your ideas, your whole life, your emotions into the final cut of this product. And I argue that the three most important people in any production are, first of all, the writer, because there's nothing without a script. Second would be the, either the director or the showrunner in television because they make all of the decisions in every department. But the third most important person, I argue, is the editor because you're also a writer. And when someone's hiring a writer for a movie, they don't say, get who's ever available. They spend a lot of time choosing a really good writer based on their samples. And just as much thought should go into choosing the editor because they're rewriting 
this product. And that's sometimes where they, where, I mean, an editor can ruin something. You can very easily destroy a great project if you don't have a good editor. And, and I've seen this happen. And that's why it's just as important to put as much thought and energy into choosing an editor as these other, what people would generally consider the writer or director, just as important as these positions. Well, I got to say, I agree with you, Roger. Uh, but what would you say makes a good editor? Right. I mean, there's a certain amount of natural ability, right? That comes from who's good at doing crossword puzzles. Well, anyone can learn to do a crossword puzzle. Who's good at running the, the 50-yard or 100-yard dash? Everyone can learn to run faster. That's why even Usain Bolt, who's you know one of the fastest people in the world, has a trainer to help him learn to run faster. Whatever you choose to do, you can become better at it. And Malcolm Gladwell calls it the 10,000-hour the rule. You just need to get your time in practicing and spend your 10,000 hours to become an expert at something. But some, I, I laid out the specifics in the book. Of, these are the things an editor should know, particularly for comedy. You know, for example, faster comedy is funnier comedy. And that doesn't mean just faster, just speed things up so everyone's talking fast. It means getting rid of everything in between the setup and the punchline that is slowing it down. A lot of times, I'll give you a specific example. Actors will throw in all sorts of word baggage, is what I call it, Jeff Schaefer showrunner, one of the showrunners of Curb Your Enthusiasm calls it word dust. We're scraping away these barnacles for like, they'll, they'll say, um, you know, they'll pause. The unnecessary pause is the enemy of comedy. If here's a sign of an amateur editor, whenever I see this, if I'm looking at, let's say I'm watching a movie and someone is speaking, but they're not on camera. Maybe you're looking at a reaction shot or an insert and the, the voice is off camera. If that's the case, you have total control over this audio. That means you can cut out the ums and the nos and this, the pauses and tighten everything up without anything stopping you. Whereas you, you might be much more difficult if their face is on camera and you're stuck with what they say. Even then I'll clear out a lot of ums and you nos. You can't even tell if somebody says, um, I'll just remove the audio, even though they're on camera and you won't notice that they said, um, it just gets in the way. It slows things down. It, it gums up the works. And you want an elegant flow from a setup to a punchline, from every line to the next line to, throughout the entire movie. When an, a, an editor is good, you feel the, the, the rhythm. It's called rhythm and pacing, right? It feels right because he got, it's like if you're writing a term paper and you just get rid of all the stuff that's bad, you fix all the grammar. It just gets, even if it's not a great term paper, it becomes a better term paper because you got rid of all of the things that were not stellar. And so you're doing all these things as an editor. I'm fixing grammar. I'm fixing enunciation. I'm replacing words sometimes. One of my, I got lots of uh, pet peeves like asterisk. That's how you say the word asterisk. There's other pronunciations that drive me crazy. <laughs> and I will search and I'll replace just that, that, that one consonant or a vowel here and there to improve an actor's performance. And then it becomes, the flow is, is smoother and more elegant and it becomes funnier now because you're getting to the punchline more smoothly without anything in the way and it, or diverting you from where the flow that you want, the, the writer wants you and the, and the actor wants you to go but sometimes things get in the way and you have to clear them out. They're not little things, but it's, it's these details, right? They add up. 
over time, there's so many, they add up. Exactly. They add up and it's just finessing your cut. I mean, like, it, it, you know, you talk a lot about sound in this book and how important it is. And also talking about just rhythm, how you really are uh, also editing by sound more than picture initially. For comedy, the yes, especially sound is primary. The performance is in the sound. And I will listen to performances and pick the best performances in my first cut, almost ignoring the visual aspect. And once I have all of my favorite performances, then I'll go back and go, okay, is this working visually? Well, we need to start on a wider shot to establish the location. So I'll swap something in here. I didn't have a wide shot. And you want to have a uh, congruency. You don't want to cut from wide, close, wide, close, wide, close. You want to go maybe start wide and then go medium, 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 then close, 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 back to medium, medium, medium. So you have groups of, of similar sized shots balancing each other. So I start to look for balancing as well as performance. And I want to make sure it flows elegantly. And are there jump cuts or is there a continuity problem I need to fix? Oh, I, I might need some more reactions. So I'll do a reaction pass, specifically looking at the people who are not speaking throughout the scene and see if they're giving me anything that's really good. So I can, uh, so the viewer, me, I'm the viewer, and then everyone, will, you'll see what I see. We can check in with people who are in the scene at appropriate moments to see how they are reacting to what's going on, because that's often where the biggest laugh is on someone's reaction. So I do all the visual stuff kind of secondary after I've chosen my favorite performance in the sound. How would you best describe the path to becoming an editor? Right. Well, there's two ways in generally that people follow, two paths into becoming an editor or any department, you know, makeup or directing, writing, wardrobe. You want the first way or one way is to apprentice. You, many people, particularly those who kind of fall into the business, maybe is one way to put it. They think, oh, I'm going to try this out. You get a job as a production assistant or an intern, and you find a department that you kind of have an affinity toward, and then you start working your way up in that department. It's the same with editing, of course. Maybe you intern, and then maybe you're an assistant, and then eventually you share credit, maybe additional editing, then co-editing, and now you hang out your shingle. I've got more than one assistant who I have shared uh, award nominations with, and that helps them launch their career and become an editor. That's one path, the apprenticeship. The other path is you just become a filmmaker. And this is what I did as a kid. I just started making films because I liked the process. I liked movies. I just wanted to do it, be it. It was a fun hobby that I enjoyed. I was going to do it whether I got paid or not. I was going to college and studying all sorts of disciplines. But on my weekends, I was making little movies, goofy little short films. and. Eventually, I decided I was going to move to Los Angeles and pursue that career, and I kicked, then I had to kick things up a notch and focus, and I started making my own movies for, from short films to uh, I finally got my first feature made, found an investor who put up the money, I found a script, they liked the script, got a film made, one project leads to another, and I just kept making projects first as a director and then as a writer-director, and, and then I started editing my own projects because just like I had my short films when I was a kid. So it felt natural. The, the first time it happened was on my first feature film. 
I had hired an editor specifically. I didn't do any editing. I wasn't planning to do any editing on my first feature. It's this film called High Strung, which is a comedy written by and starring a comic named Steve Odekirk. And I, I met Denise Crosby in that film, who became my partner in Trekkies. And Jim Carrey's in it for an unbilled cameo. Tom Thomas F. Wilson, who was Biff in Back to the Future. Janie Lane of Warrant. We had a lot of fun making this indie film. When we got to the editing room, we had six weeks to cut the film. And I sat behind the editor and watched him and made suggestions and we tried things. And as I watched him, I began to absorb the process. And by week five, I essentially pushed him out of the way and finished the film with him. He would, when, he went, when he collapsed from exhaustion or went home, I stayed and kept editing and was learning the process because I was so excited by being there and editing my film. I came out of that with an ability to use a, a digital software. And at that time, this was called an EMC squared. That was one of the early digital editing platforms. And then I went to Division and learned that. And then I took a class in Avid. Then I learned Final Cut Pro. Right now, I'm all Avid because the industry, that's the industrial product. Pretty much everybody uses Avid in all of the shows I work on. But I followed this path as a filmmaker who essentially fit into a groove. I enjoyed editing my own projects. And eventually, people started offering me editing jobs. And I found I really enjoyed that lifestyle, uh, that process. I liked the hours. I liked putting puzzles together. Uh, I could, I could be creative and it, it, it fulfilled my need for creativity as a writer and a, and a creative person by being an editor. And now that doesn't mean that both of these paths can't coexist. You can't do both. In fact, I recommend you do both make a short film. I had an assistant on Veep who used to come to the office and I would reference movies I'd seen like Jeremiah Johnson or The Wild Bunch. And he would look at me blankly. I, you haven't seen The Wild Bunch? Sam Peckinpah? Uh, have you heard of? Uh, no, never heard of that. So I said, okay, <laughs> let's sit down. Let's make a list. I gave him a list of movies that I like movies. I thought you absolutely need to see these movies. And then he would watch them and come in and we would discuss them while we're working on Veep, which was fun. And then I said, okay, next, you need to make your own film. You need to make a short film so you understand the entire process from beginning to ending. ending. Write the script, cast it, direct it, edit it. And he did. And he said it was really scary. I wrote about this in the book, his process, because it cost him $20,000. It's not cheap sometimes. If, you want, if, you're, if your ambitions are <laughs> to, to be good, you need the right, you need the location, you need props. You need to feed the crew. These things add up. Now, I'm not saying everyone has to spend $20,000. If you can't afford to make a 12-minute short film, make a one-minute short. Make, make what you can afford. But do, the, do everything. Write it. Shoot it. Be the cameraman if you have to. Or, you know, get, conscript all your friends to help you. But get it done so that you have experienced the entire process. Then you bring that knowledge to all of your editing, and it will improve your editing radically. And this happened for my assistant. He increased his ability I, dramatically, I think, and now is a full-fledged editor. Well, it's so important to 
learn the language of film, not only for your own projects, but also to better communicate with everyone else on the production, right? Would say with the composer, with the director, with the DP. It just allows you to just kind of, again, just have better communication. It's not to say that you have to be a professional DP or, or, or write music as a composer, but at least understand the language. By watching old movies, you are absorbing the language of film. You're exactly right. And by studying them, you learn what does it mean? What is a wide shot? How wide is a wide shot? I mean, it seems like a really basic question, but if you've never shot something and thought about it, it may not come naturally that there are differences. There's angles, low angle, high angle, wide angle. There's a, a 50 millimeter lens, I think is what's considered a normal lens because it's, it's, it's a typical lack of distortion and framing and size. But if you get 120 or maybe you want a zoom lens, what's, what's the benefit of a zoom lens? I mean, with a zoom lens, you've got, you can change the framing very quickly, but you lose clarity. If you want a really crisp image, you want to have a prime lens. Well, what does that mean? You, you, know, you, you start to learn these things because you do it. You learn by doing. And Hitchcock is famous for doing this dolly zoom, right? Where he maybe he'll push in and uh, dolly in while zooming out. And the size of the person remains the same, but the background starts to really warp and, and it, it feels weird. And so he was trying to give a sense of someone feels really out of sorts. And many people have borrowed that ever since. But Hitchcock essentially invented that by using a zoom lens with a dolly move at the, simultaneously. Now, as an editor who never studied film, you might not know what that is or realize that's an option. But by, by doing, you learn and like you said, the language, how to communicate with a composer. How many notes are in a, are in a, a stanza or a bar or uh, what's a half note versus a quarter note? A quarter note, you know, is, is two, two parts of a half note or a whole note. Just learning some basic terminology. One of the things I've learned that's really important in, for, for composing is... Um, when a piece is composed in a minor key, a minor key sounds sad. And so many times I thought this music sound, it's just too sad. And it's because it was in a minor key. And then the composer just changes the key. It's no longer sad anymore. I would never have known that if I hadn't studied it a little bit or learned about it a little bit. And I was able to solve the problem in my own, my own mind much more quickly without trying to discuss what's wrong with this cue with the composer. Oh, it just doesn't work. Try something else. That's not very helpful, but Hey, it's, you know, what? I think it's in a minor key. It's too sad. This is a, a happy moment. Let's try something else here that feels a little more positive energy with, with some more positive energy. So yes, you're by studying and learning and absorbing, you're learning the language of film. You can communicate better with the directors and the producers who are in your editing room to give them what they want. Roger, you've worked a lot in comedy. I know a lot of people uh, that want to work in comedy. There's not a lot of editors working in this genre. And I know there's a lot of shows that deal with comedy where they'll start with, say, a drama editor and then bring in a comedy editor later in the schedule. Would you say it's difficult to cut comedy? Wow, yeah. I mean, comedy editors, on average, get paid more than drama editors because there are fewer of them, fewer good comedy editors to go around. So it raises the, uh, your value. And why is that? Well, comedy is just drama with the jokes added in. It's much easier to do drama without the jokes. And with comedy, it's very clear when, you're not, when it's not working. 
if, if you're not a good comedy editor, it's obvious because it's not funny. Whereas drama, you've got more room to, to be to slide and you can get away with it not being as tight or as perfect. It's still going to be perceived as dramatic, whereas your skills have to be pretty razor sharp with comedy. And you have to have that particular instinct to know what's funny, that what you think is funny is what your showrunner or your director and your the writer thought was funny. You've got to be in sync. And there is a lot of consent and, and agreement among comedians and writers about what's funny. People will go, yeah, that's that movie's really funny. Everyone agrees, right? That is funny. So we all have a sense of what's funny, and there are certain things that lead to laughter. One of the things I did in the book was break that down into what I call the periodic table of nonsense. Here are the things to look for. This is what's funny. And I think it was E.B. White who once said that dissecting comedy is like trying to dissect a frog. They both die in the process. It's, it's very hard. You kill a joke by trying to explain it, right? But there are things that, like, for example, Surprise is one of the things you try to create. You want an audience to be surprised about the turn or direction that something took. Somebody said something unexpected. So we're walking a delicate balance between making sure the audience is not ahead of us, but they're not too far behind us. You want to try to keep them at a certain place in the story so that when it's time to laugh, they're not having to think and put the story pieces together because they're too far behind and they're trying to catch up. Because there's a different side of the brain. Laughing and, and putting the story together are different processes. So you want them right up with you, but not too far ahead. If they're too far ahead, they're predicting what's going to happen, and there's no longer a surprise. So then you got if they're ahead of you, you got to speed things up to get there faster so that the timing is right. So that's the first one of the first elements I discovered or you know, when I was started trying to figure out what is comedy. The second was that. Most of comedy or a lot of comedy is just truth. Someone speaking the truth, showing us the truth. Because we as humans in society, we spend a lot of time trying to suppress the truth. We work very hard <laughs> trying not to face the truth in our lives <laughs> and in relationships, particularly, right? Larry David spends a lot of time dealing with liars or lying about something and then having to tell another lie to cover that lie up. And then it grows and gets more out of control. The third thing is pain, surprise, truth, and pain. There's nothing funnier than watching somebody fall down <laughs> or bump their head, right? And a lot of great comedy combines all these things, slapstick comedy. You know, Buster Keaton is, in my opinion, the greatest master of slapstick. If you've never seen a Buster Keaton movie, you must go oh, yeah. <laughs> back and watch Buster Keaton movies because the, the brilliance is in his staging, his acrobatics, but also the editing and his, his, the, his conceptualizing of what's funny. And you'll see, you'll notice that Jackie Chan, for example, is doing Buster Keaton. He's a Buster Keaton fan and is bringing forward into a new era that style of comedy. And you'll, you'll start to notice antecedents in everything you're watching now. Every movie you love today probably has antecedents in all of these early forefathers of filmmaking and foremothers, for forewriters, for the, all the, the people who came before. So those are three things that you look for in comedy. Surprise, 
truth and pain. But then there's other things like absurd absurdity is naturally funny and behavior that violates social norms. Whenever somebody acts or behaves in a way that violates the rules of society, we laugh. You know, the the, the person who acts crazy or the, the title of my book, Cut to the Monkey, comes from that idea that if you have a monkey in the scene, you can cut to that monkey at any time when you, you're stuck. You've got a continuity problem. You need to get from A to C and you can't get there. Well, if there's a monkey in the scene, you can always cut to a monkey because no matter when you look at a monkey, they're always doing something funny. They're always interesting to look at at any time because they're funny just in general. They don't follow the rules of society. They look vaguely humanoid, but they don't, what, you, don't, you never know what they're going to do. They don't know the rules and the laws that we follow. And so it's generally what they're doing is funny. It's the same with any animal or a baby or a child. Uh, they're great cutaways and they're funny cutaways and they're funny elements to throw into a scene to try to make it funnier. Oh, totally. And congrats again on the book, Cut to the Monkey. You have some great guests on there. You know, Larry David, Sasha Baron Cohen, Judd Apatow. I mean, like some comedy heavyweights are in there. People you've worked with. What, uh, what led you to write this book? Well, I was sitting in an editing room often with people that you just mentioned. And I started to think to myself, I've got these funny people trapped in a room with me. I should interrogate them. <laughs> and and see what I can learn about just what is funny and what isn't funny. And uh, I eventually just got around to it. And the impetus for that was when I was editing on Grey's Anatomy, which is a, primarily a drama, but there are funny scenes. And that was one reason I got hired on the show is because the showrunner, Christopher Vernoff, who had taken over the series at, uh, at season 14, was wanted to go back toward the show's comedy roots. So they were looking for an editor who knew comedy. So I, I was brought on. One of the other editors came up to me one day and said, how do you edit comedy? He was, he was really struggling because he, he wanted to give Krista what she was looking for, but he had come up through drama and, and he realized there was a difference. And so I thought, well, yeah, there are some specifics. And I wrote him a list of like, I don't know, eight or 10 or 12 things and then I just kept going and cut to two years later, I've, I had the book done. I, I interviewed these people, I, these showrunners I worked with and collected their wisdom and sprinkled it throughout what my advice. And that's what became this book. But just to get, I'll give you an example of what I told this uh, dramatic editor. I said, for one thing, if you want a scene to be funnier, what you're used to in Grey's Anatomy is using a lot of close-ups because Drama is in the face. The emotions are in the face. So when people are emoting, they're crying, they're emotional, they're overwrought, you tend to get tight. But if you want it to be funnier, go to the wider shot because a lot of the comedy is in the body language. And if you can't see the body, you're losing a lot of the humor. When you can see the whole, maybe the way they're standing is awkward and you get an extra laugh that you wouldn't have known from that tight shot. I gave him specific tips like that that are practical. You can just you can apply that easily. Well, check the wide shots if you want it to get funnier. Widen out. Another is when someone is delivering a funny line, you've got to be on their face as directly from the front as possible. The, the more direct it is, the funnier it gets. A punchline delivered from a side angle is not as funny as a punchline delivered directly or more directly toward camera. And a punchline delivered uh 
off camera is even less funny. And once you get on their face for the punchline, do not cut away until the absolute last syllable of the punchline is delivered. You'll you'll be you'll have a, a tendency sometimes to want to cut away too soon, maybe to match continuity or for some other reason, but don't do it. Wait till they finish the sentence. It'll be funnier when you do that. And these are there are little things like that that you can do that you might not have been aware of. I wasn't aware of these things until I started learning them. But part of what a scene being funny is just good editing, editing it well and getting rid of everything that's unimportant. Just plain speed things up as much as possible. I'll tell you another thing I cut out. A lot of actors will throw in announcements before they start speaking. It's it's basically, it's like clearing your throat, which is say, <clears throat> meaning I'm about to speak, pay attention to me. The way they do this is they'll add look or listen before they start speaking. I noticed Joe Biden does this all the time. He'll say, look, and then he'll start speaking. And it's a it's just a, a crutch, a pattern that we sometimes fall into when we're gathering our thoughts. I cut all that stuff out. I just get to what they're going to say without the announcement. And it speeds things up a little faster and gets you there more quickly and more elegantly. You get into also this part where you talk about uh, what is important as an editor to learn besides editing, right? You say history, science, uh, literature, Because I remember someone asked me, like, how do you become, how do you keep improving as an editor? And I think, and what I said was that I, I like to have experiences, right? I like to talk to people. I like to travel. And, and she, I remember she was surprised with my answer. But I, it's like, it's just, you know, reading this book, it's like I connected with it and related to it. Because, yes, I think it is important to become a better editor. You need to have life experiences and also learn about other things that are not directly related to editing. So important. I wish I had taken more literature when I was in college. Because it's it's about story, classic literature, great literature, absorbing what all the masters have done long before I arrived on the scene. But also, yes, you need to know about science. I mean, oh, I'm not good at science. It doesn't matter. You still need to know something about, especially like another specific example. I thought when I was in college, well, I like directing and I want to be able to, to do special effects or communicate with a special effects person. So I took a class in physics so I could understand how, how does the universe work? What, what is momentum and torque? And how will that affect, I mean, all these things come into play with stunts and the timing. I just, you know, I've had to shoot direct car chases and you may not make a one-to-one -one direct line in your head between this class I'm taking and how this is going to specifically affect my filmmaking in the future. But knowledge is power. The more you know, the better you'll become at whatever discipline you choose. I took a class in meteorology because you might notice if you've ever been on a, on a production, what's crucial to shooting on location is the weather. Well, is it going to rain? Or if we have to, we have to have a cover set ready if it rains. Well, I learned in meteorology class that in North America, Almost all the weather comes from the West because of uh, that's the direct because of the the Earth is spinning on its axis and it's created this flow, the jet stream, and it tends to blow all the uh, the uh, air in one direction, and that brings weather patterns. So when I was filming a short film, for instance, I would go outside in the morning and look to the west and see if there are any clouds and say, "Okay, well, let's shoot today." <laughs> and I mean. If I had never taken that meteorology class, I would have been clueless. And it just helped to understand that. 
I would take philosophy classes. I, I took biology classes. I took, I took some classes in every discipline just to get a general idea of how the world and the universe operates. You should take psychology classes because if you're a writer and an editor, which are kind of the same thing, you need to understand how people think and why they behave the way they do because that's what storytelling is. It's showing us, it's telling us morality tales about why people behave and do the things they do. Sociology is also another important class. I mean, there's really, it's hard to find a discipline that isn't, that won't affect your ability as a filmmaker, but particularly literature and psychology, those are two crucial ones. Well, and I think it also just, you know, you have more to talk about with people. You're li likely to connect more with people, say, knowing more, simply having some more to talk about. The traveling. Yeah, I'd say the traveling, you point your finger on that, is, is really kind of crucial. Me getting out in the world and, and, and finding out what the world is about. I, I, it's not really a mistake, but it, it kind of is. I went right from college to Los Angeles, and I didn't really travel and get to see the world. I didn't experience things that I could write about. You know, you can't write about something if you didn't experience it, or otherwise you're going to write cliches. And so when I did start writing screenplays, I ended up having to team up with people who had had experiences that we could write about to keep it real and grounded. When I wrote Suckers, a comedy about car salesmen, my co-writer had sold cars for two years, and we based it on his experiences doing that. And I, it would have been very hard for me. I, could, I mean, how could I write a movie about car salesmen if I've never sold cars, it would just be a surface, very surfacey approach to some, by someone who knows nothing about cars. But because Joe Yannetti knew that world, we were able to create a world that was accurate and full of truth, which made it funnier. So you should go out and experience the world. I, how could I write about being a policeman or in, the, in a war somewhere? I've never experienced these things. Well, research, right? They, a lot of writers do a lot of research or they find, find someone to, to partner with who has had these experiences. Well, and, and speaking of, I guess, communicating with people and, and establishing relationships, I mean, you, a, a big part of this book also talks about, you know, we, we discussed it earlier about the, the soft skills, right? You say how showrunners want to work with editors that are a pleasure to be around, even talking about you have to smell good. How important that is, right? I mean, uh, and also, for example, I think that David Mandel says that, that you can't take things personally. Yeah, right. I mean, if you're, if you're the type of person who is very easily affected by others' moods, it's harder to be an editor. You've got to be the stabilizing influence if you're in the editing room. You've got to be someone they like to be around for several weeks. You're going to be together with them for many weeks. And so you've got to be pleasant. And and. You can't be too talkative. It's not a cocktail hour. You've got, you're there to get the work done. But sometimes they come in and they want to talk a little bit before you get started. And you have to, uh, you've got to have a sense, your barometer, your social barometer has to be functioning well so that you don't, you're not the one that they have to tell, okay, Roger, let's get to work, right? You want to, I, I try to keep things moving along before they ever get to the, that point of having to tell me, hey, let's get to work. Uh, I'll start. I'll start the work and start showing them things and they'll fall right in after we've had what I've sensed really a moment they wanted to talk about. A lot of times on Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry David would walk into the editing room and I'd be there with maybe Jeff Schaefer, the other uh, showrunner, and Larry would start telling us a story about what happened to him. And we'd be laughing. It'd be hilarious. And we'd listen. For example, he came in once last season, season during season 10. 
And he said, oh, over the weekend, I had to go. I got invited to this renew your vows, renew your wedding vows party where this couple wanted to renew their vows in front of all their friends. And it was awful. I couldn't stand. Oh, can you imagine why do people do that? It's disgusting. And he went you know, off, off and by how he thought, how ridiculous he thought that was. <clears throat> and he said, I was sitting there watching this happen. And I, on my face, it clearly showed how disgusted I was. Oh, get a room. You know, this is ridiculous. And then I realized I was on camera because they had a videographer there to capture everything. And the, the way the camera was framed, I was right within frame. And I thought, oh, no, they're going to see this video. They're going to see how appalled I look and I'm going to be in big trouble. So then he thought, well, what he had to do to fix it was from that point forward, he had to put on this, this new attitude and pretend he's loving it how enthralled he was and how wonderful. So now he's doubly in pain because he's got to pretend to like it while he's suffering. And he's telling us this story and we're laughing. And then if you watch season 11, this turns up as a storyline in one of the episodes. And so even though we enjoyed this little moment and we laughed and had a good time, and then we got to work, it was all part of the job because Larry was essentially trying out a storyline on us, which then made it into the next season. Well, it's good to hear that you love doing this because... You do have to love this. I mean, the truth is, is that this requires a lot of work, you know, no matter how fun it is. The hours are long. Yeah, I'm not going to soft sell this. The hours are long many times. And it's the type, it's a very labor intensive job because you have to put all these pieces together. And that means you've got to look at everything. You've got to sort it. You've got to be really organized. And it takes time. It's not an editing, being an editor is not really a job for an extrovert. It's really more of the person who embraces their introvert, the side of them that can be introverted. I mean, we all have both, you know, at times, different times, but you can't be easily distracted if you're going to be an editor. You have to be able to focus and deliver a work product that um, not only is good, but is done on time and uh, within the schedule. So it's a, it's a certain type of attitude and ability to focus as well as smelling good, being a, uh, enjoyable. Uh, sometimes you've got to be somebody's therapist. You've got to support them. They're maybe feeling insecure about the, the film. Oh, no, I hope uh, this episode is, is going to work. You know what it is? It's, gonna, it's great. It's going to be, we're going to get it there. I can see it. I think you did a great job. You've got you've to be supportive. You know, they're looking to you as not just to put pieces together, but to be a part of the support team. So you have the job of an editor is, is many faceted beyond just putting the pieces together. You have to identify what people need and present that support. And sometimes that you, you identify, they don't want to talk. They just want to work. Sometimes you identify they need to talk. And sometimes you've got to, to build them back up because it was a very difficult shoot. And you know what? It may not be what they envisioned, but what you've got here is good, and it's going to turn out great. Oh, yeah. It's, it's so true. I mean, I've, I've experienced that. And so, yes, I mean, and that's why I love this book is because you talk about this side of editing and maybe, maybe doesn't get talked about enough. Uh, and really, tell how it is, what it is working in, in you know, doing this career. Uh, it's all in this book, Cut to the Monkey. I mean, obviously, you work with the... Biggest names in comedy. Obviously, you're still working with them, and, and you keep getting hired back. You, you talk about, uh, you say that the, the willingness to edit keeps you getting hired back, right? I mean, you, you work hard, right? Um, and I think we all, we're talking about, I guess, 
work-life balance, right? This gets discussed a lot. But the reality is, like you said, I mean, these are long hours. And sometimes you got to, you know, you got to make yourself available on the weekend if the showrunner wants to come in. I mean, right. I mean, part of uh, getting asked back, that's, as you put it, I write about that. You know, you want to get referrals. You want people to, to refer you to other people. You want them to call you for the next project. And the way to, I mean, to be the, the guy that the, or the person who works repeatedly, yes, you have to be a good editor, but you also have to be available. You have to be there when they need you. You can't offer resistance. It's very difficult to work with somebody who is resistant all the time. And there's on two levels. One is for your physical presence, you need to be there when they need you. And sometimes that means working till four in the morning and on weekends. And also you need to give them what they want in the editing room. You've got to, what, one of my mottos is uh, get the editor, or I'm sorry, get, one of my mottos is get the producer out of the room as quickly as possible. And you do that by giving them what they want. You have already made your case for what you think is the best choice in your editor's cut. It, it's no longer time for you to, to, to de- debate what's right or wrong. It's, you're, the time is now for you to listen to what they're looking for and asking for and try to give it to them. You're just slowing things down if you defend your choices. Being defensive is not helpful. Okay, sure. If somebody asks you a specific question, what do you think about this edit or this scene or this take? Sure, voice your opinion. You're hired to have an opinion. But it's a waste of time or it's, it's the wrong energy to debate your choices. Well, I, I think what I chose is better because this. That's irrelevant. If, if it's not working for them, it doesn't matter what you thought when you made that choice. And so you've got to be willing and open to try anything. Krista Vernoff on Grey's Anatomy said that for her, great editors get excited by a note to try a new thing. That's, and if you do that, you're going to get asked back. They want to see your excitement to try new things, to try their suggestions, to try it their way, to try 50 different songs, if that's what it takes, to find the right song for that moment. The person who doesn't get excited is offering resistance to change. And it's natural to not want to change what you already did. It's natural to want to go, no, I don't think that's going to work. I never say, oh, that's not going to work. It's it's like... What they do in improv comedy, they have a process called yes and. You never say no to what someone throws to you in improv. If somebody says something like whatever the concept is they're working with, you're making things up, right? You're doing improv. Someone says, oh, uh, I've got a duck on my lap. And if you, if you say no, you don't, you stopped the forward motion of the comedy. So what you should say is when someone says, oh, no, I've got a duck on my lap. Yes. And it just took a crap on your chinos. You toss it back. You you say yes, and, and you add to it. It's the same as an editor. Oh, I I don't think this is working. Could we try something else? Yes, let's do that. And maybe we could also try this other thing that you think might work better. You try their thing. You try another thing. You've got, it's non-destructive. You can make choices and it doesn't destroy what you did before. You can always revert to what you had. And, and oftentimes we've gone right back to what was in the editor's cut after trying everything. And then the producer or the director can grieve that they didn't get what they had imagined in their mind, but they can see that you now have the best of all possible choices because they you went through it with them 
with an open mind. I love how you share personal experiences from the cutting room in this book. A- any, any, I guess, uh, stories you could share or maybe an experience you had with, with, with someone like Larry David or, or, or Sasha Baron Cohen? I mean, what are some things that you've learned from these people? Oh my goodness, I learned so much from these people all the time. And I mean, when I first took the job on Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry David asked me, why do you want this job? I, and I said, specifically, Larry, I want this job because I want to learn how you do what you do from the inside. And he laughed and pretended he wasn't flattered and and gave me the job. But I have learned from every producer I've worked with and every director and every writer. I I mean, I keep learning. I haven't learned everything by far. I still have so much more to learn. But I learned from Sasha Baron Cohen, for example, that when he is faced with a joke that isn't working, that he feels like it should work, he doesn't examine the punchline. He'll examine the setup. First, this punchline should be working, but it's not. When he does a test screening, it's clear it's working, it's not working because the amount of laughs. And he gave an example of how one time he looked at the setup and he realized there was a sound effect that was three frames out of sync. He put the sound effect in sync, beefed it up a little bit, rescreened it, and it got the big laugh he knew should be there. He knew intellectually this should be funny, but it's falling flat. It's because it it wasn't quite put together right. He fixed the setup. He he fixed the building blocks around the punchline, and it worked. He he he. he Sasha Baron Cohen approaches comedy like a scientist. Well, he will test screen episodes or scenes many times and compare the responses and try the setups and the jokes in different conjunctions and, and different organizations and different. Um, approaches until he finds the, the the best mixture that seems to be the funniest one. And he'll do that right up to the last minute, pretty much until the show airs. He's still tinkering and trying different things. Whereas Larry David will basically just screen an episode once with the generally the same seven, eight, or nine, or 10 people that have uh, been part of his screening group for a long time that he feels confident that in their uh, approach to what's funny, they he trusts their laughter and non-laughter. And he's not really even looking for specific suggestions when the screening is over. He's just feeling the room during the screening and it becomes obvious when things are falling flat. And after that screening, we know what to cut out and we don't really, nobody sits around for a lot of discussion afterwards. There's a little bit of this, this story discussion where Jeff Schaefer and Larry David pull out their list and ask them questions about plot. Did you understand why the, the cake was in the room and not in the garage or something, you know, some, some specific, something that was important to the story? They want to make sure that people understand the setups. And they, they got their little checklist. Okay, they understood that. Oh, they weren't clear about that. We need to go back and make that more clear. It's such a process of um, analysis to, to make sure that we're getting the absolute funniest, most condensed amount of laughs possible within an episode. I mean, it's like, it's just so important to just always, like I said, keep on learning, right? And, and seek mentors, right? And, and we, we can't do this alone. It's important to get that knowledge from people who are far more experienced or maybe, the, you know, or just have a different point of view. The fact is it, it's important just to always keep learning. That never ends. I learn from my assistants. Often I will do what we call a scene challenge 
where I will cut the scene and then my assistant will cut the scene when we won't, we won't look at each other's scenes until we finish. And then we'll compare and see what we did differently. And often I'll find something that my assistant did. I never thought of I go, wow, good idea. <laughs> and then we'll merge them into the best version of the scene. Yeah. That's definitely a great idea. Well, that Then they can learn, right? They learn and, and they, and, and they're, you're teaching them. I teach them by doing that, they teach me and I teach them and we both improve. Roger, I want to be respectful of your time. I want to start winding this down. I want to, I, I know a lot of people that uh, want to work in comedy. I mean, my next question was going to be any advice for people that want to break into comedy, editing comedy. I mean, obviously, we just say here, read, read the book, Cut to the Monkey, right? Uh, but I mean, here, uh, any advice you can give our audience here that, that, that want to be uh, comedy editors? Yes, study screwball comedies from the 40s. Read David Sedaris. Read funny books. Study funny feature films. I went back and watched a film I thought was funny when I was a kid called What's Up, Doc? And it still stands up. It's just as funny today as it was in the 1970s when it first came out. Absorb, study and absorb comedy, whether it's writing, movies, TV shows. I mean, there's a show called Hacks that I thought was very funny this year. And uh, it's rare that I find a really funny show that isn't strictly formulaic. Like sitcom means situation comedy. And what that means is if you put someone in a funny situation, you're going to have laughs. That's the most, that's what I've learned. One of the things I've learned is it's not about just writing jokes. You can't write jokes out of thin air. The jokes come from the situation. And in Curb Your Enthusiasm, they have fully written out the story. All the situations have been fully written out before they film, but none of the dialogue has. And they go and improv the dialogue, and it's, I wouldn't say easy, but it comes more naturally because the situation is funny. One of my favorite examples is a very simple premise. Larry asks the question, how many free samples of ice cream is too many? When you go to an ice cream store and they hand out little spoons with samples, if someone's waiting behind you, when is it too much? When are you abusing your privilege or violating the rules of society? That's the premise. Now they cast a woman to be opposite Larry, who's getting ice cream samples, and now they argue about this concept. And the scene is funny because the premise is funny. Nobody wrote the dialogue until they got there, but it came naturally. And when people are writing, when writers are writing screenplays or TV episodes, filling in the dialogue is the last step. It's writing the story is the hard part. That's what takes the longest. And a lot of writers, they get anxious and they want to get started. I just want to start writing the script. And they start too soon before they've figured out the plot and make sure the plot works and your subplots work and they intersect and they climax at the right time. You know, you want the A plot to be the last plot to climax and the B plot should be before that and the C plot before it should finish up climax before the main or main plots do. And if, if that's out of sync, as an editor, you might realize that. And I've noticed that before. I thought, oh, you know, the scene they've written to be the last scene in the episode needs to be the second to last scene because it's the B plot. It's not the A plot. And I'll move things around. And, now, and then I understood why I was moving it around. And so when we got in the editing room, I could explain, well, this is why I put this here. What do you think? And it's because I had studied a little bit of comedy and gotten to know a little bit about, about writing I'd read all the books on writing, get your hands on all the books that 
there are a lot of great books about writing screenplays and writing television. Read those as well as books on editing if you want to be an editor. If you want to be a director of photography, it's much, it helps to, for you to understand story structure because then you frame the shots in the best way to help tell the story, to show the information that the story needs. If you don't know how stories work, you're just randomly setting up shots and doing random coverage, and it's not going to be nearly as cinematic and helpful to the performers and to the editor. So everyone is helped. Every member of the crew is helped by understanding story structure. Absolutely. And, and of course, guys, you got to check it out. Cut to the Monkey, a great book. I highly, highly recommend it. You lay it all there for everyone, anyone who wants to be uh, an editor. Uh, again, it just explores all sides of this career. And, and again, congratulations. Just uh, and thank you for putting this out there. It's, it's just an amazing book. We're definitely going to link it in the show notes. And I do want to say that, that it's, it's not... Sure, you 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 talk about work in comedy, but it certainly doesn't apply to just someone that that works in comedy or wants to work in comedy. It applies really to any genre. Absolutely, it's all the rules that apply to editing comedy apply to editing in general. It's just that comedy is the most difficult of the genres for an editor, and because your skills have to be sharp, otherwise it's obvious. And so that's why I. My focus, I put the spotlight primarily on the hardest part of, of editing, but it applies to all aspects. Thanks again, Roger. It was great having you here on the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. And again, congratulations on your new book, Cut to the Monkey. We're going to put a link in the show notes. People definitely need to get it. But thank you, Roger. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much. I really can't recommend Roger's book enough. Make sure you get it today. Cut to the Monkey. It's available by using the link in the show notes. I'm telling you, it's a blueprint for finding success as an editor, whether you want to work in comedy or any other genre. Thank you for listening to episode 27 of the Hollywood Editing Mentor Podcast. Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. And also make sure to share this episode with anyone that is looking to be an editor, that wants to advance your editing career, or that is interested in cutting comedy. My name is Joaquin Elizondo, the creator of the Hollywood Editing Mentor Program. I'll see you next time.